Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Professor William Happer, the Cyrus Fogg Brackett Professor of Physics Emeritus at Princeton University, a longtime member of the Jason Advisory Group, where he pioneered the development of adaptive optics. Professor Happer is a founding member of the CO2 Coalition, and he served as the director of the Department of Energy's Office of Science from 1991 to 1993. In 2018, he was on the National Security Council studying the impact of carbon dioxide on global warming. Professor Happer, thank you so much for joining us. It is a pleasure to have you here today. Well, it's a pleasure. So 
you are a highly credentialed scientist, and yet you do not have the predominant view, I would say, amongst your colleagues in uh, most universities these days, wherein they happen to believe in the idea that carbon dioxide emissions are causing irreversible and destructive damage to the Earth's climate. So uh, what is your position? Let's just begin from the beginning. What is your position on what is the impact of humanity on the climate? What do you think is the case? Well, climate has always had a big impact on humanity. You know, you can read about it in the Bible. That's why Joseph went to Egypt. You know, there was a uh, drought in Palestine. So uh, climate is always going to fluctuate. And uh, we're only talking about fairly small-term fluctuations when we look at the recent history of, say, the last few thousand years. But, of course, there are much, much bigger fluctuations over the Ice Ages. None of this had anything to do with carbon dioxide. And the increases in carbon dioxide that we're seeing now also have almost nothing to do with climate. Few people realize how small the influence of carbon dioxide is on climate on radiative transfer, but if you double the concentrations of CO2, carbon dioxide, you only reduce radiation to space by about 1%. You know, that's a very tiny amount, and it doesn't take much change in temperature or cloudiness or many other factors to compensate for that. So the idea that increasing carbon dioxide is causing a runaway greenhouse effect or a runaway climate change is simply not true. It's never been true. Carbon dioxide has always changed in the past, and we're at historically low levels now compared to what the Earth has been through uh, previously and compared to the levels that are best for plants. Yeah, I mean, historically, looking at the historical track record, I, I think it, it's pretty difficult to argue with people about CO2 levels in the past. Usually, when I make this argument, I think the vast majority of scientists will agree that CO2 levels were much higher in the past. But what is the quality of evidence that we have for that? At the end of the day, you know, science is experimentation. So we can't perform experiments with time machines, as far as I can tell. So we can't go back to the world a million years ago and say, this was the, perf this was the concentration of CO2 back then. So what kind of evidence do we have that suggests that it is, that it was in fact much higher in the past? Well, there are a number of proxy ways that you can judge the amount of CO2 in the past. One of the simplest ways is you look at stomata and leaves. You know, when there's a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere, plants grow leaves with fewer holes in them. You know, they use these little uh, holes, the stomata, little mouths, I guess, in, in Greek or something, to get CO2 from the air and CO2 diffuses in. And plant really doesn't like to have holes in its leaves because uh, although it lets CO2 in, it lets water out. And so it dries out the plant. So plants have a fine-tuned feedback mechanism. And when they sense that the atmosphere has more CO2, they grow leaves that have fewer stomata in them. So if you look at fossil leaves, you can count the number of stomata in this fossil leaf, you know, in some swamp or something where it's been preserved for a long time. And if you see 
fewer holes, you know there was more CO2. And if you see more holes, you know there was less CO2 because the plant is straining to get enough CO2 to live. And so it needs more holes to let uh, molecules diffuse into the leaf. So that's one. It's tomato. Another, uh, perhaps the most important one for very old times before there were leaves uh, or leaves of plants that we fully understand are paleosols. If you look at fossil soils and you look at the carbonates in the soil and you look at the isotope ratios of the carbonates, from this you're able to model uh, amount of CO2 was in the atmosphere when the soil was formed because some of that carbonate comes from atmospheric CO2 that diffused down into the soil and that will have one ratio of carbon 12 to carbon 13, which you can measure very precisely. And some of it comes from the roots themselves. The roots respire. They breathe just the same way you and I do. And they release carbon dioxide that has very, very little carbon 13 in it. You know, when plants synthesize carbohydrates in photosynthesis, they uh, discriminate against carbon 13. So the workhorse in in most of these paleo estimates of CO2 is the carbon-12 to carbon-13 ratio. There are other examples of that that we could talk about, but but that's the flavor of it. That's how it's done. And what about the evidence that these things are as old as scientists really tell us? So, I mean, it's all right, we can measure the stomata and we can measure the ratio of different carbons. But how do we know that this is really a leaf that is one million years old or five million years old or not, you know, 500 or 5,000? I mean, at the end of the day, they all get old and they can all burn down and they disintegrate. What is what is your assessment of the state of evidence on that question? Well, if they're not too old, say they're less than 100,000 years, you can use carbon-14 dating you know, because, you know, the atmosphere is full of uh, carbon-14, a radioactive form of carbon that's caused by cosmic rays. And the plants absorb this. And so a fresh piece of wood is fairly radioactive with carbon-14. But if you have a piece of wood that's been... Uh, sheltered from cosmic rays for, you know, 10,000 years, it will have about half the amount of carbon-14 in it because it's decayed away. And if you have a piece of wood that's even older, there'll be less and less. So the uh, amount of carbon-14 is is really the gold standard for the recent past, you know, tens of thousands, maybe up to 100,000 years. It, it doesn't work forever because it all decays away after a while and there's none left and you, then you're stuck. So there are other radioisotopes that can be used for older periods and it, it depends on the circumstances. If it's very old, for example, you can look at the decay of potassium-40 in volcanic glasses and so you can find a leaf or you can find... uh some other remains that's surrounded by volcanic ash. And then by looking at the ratio of argon-40 and potassium-40 in the ash, you can judge how old it is because potassium-40 gradually radioactively decays, but it has a very, very long uh, half-life compared to, you know, uh, carbon-14. 
And so by picking radioisotopes of different half-lives, you can uh, pretty well establish what the uh, ages of, of the sediments are uh, that you're trying to study. I mean, the oldest of all are, you know, isotopes of uranium. You know, uranium has uh, uh, lifetimes that are of the order of billions of years. I don't remember the exact number, but one of the reasons today we have mostly uh, uranium-238, you know, when you dig up uranium, as opposed to U-235, which is the valuable one, that's the one that's fissionable, that you can use in a nuclear power plant, is that the the uranium-235 lifetime is, is quite a bit shorter than 238, so it's mostly decayed away from the time it was formed, when the Earth was formed. But uh, uranium-238 has a much longer lifetime. It also decays, but much more slowly. And so there's more of it left. In the early Earth, uh, I think you know, there were natural nuclear reactors. There is a famous one in West Africa, it perked away with uh, and went critical uh, you know, several billion years ago and, and it gradually used up most of the U-235, but long ago when there was more of it. It's much harder to make a natural reactor to, today because there's not much U-235 left in natural uranium ore. But most of the dating is, is based on radioactive decay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so... Uh, you're a physicist, so you should know this. And, you know, generally when talking to, uh, I like to call them carbon hysterics, people who are driven into hysteria by <laughs> atmospheric mm-hmm. concentration of CO2, they'll generally tell you, well, this is just basic physics and you don't understand physics. And you don't have a PhD in physics, so you don't know. And curiously enough, when somebody who's world expert at the top of his field in physics says this, these things, Suddenly, physics is irrelevant for climate, and, I, and I've seen you attacked repeatedly because you're not a climate scientist. You're just a physicist, as they say, which is curious because, you know, if they're talking to a physicist, then you're just a physicist. If they're talking to somebody else, then they pull up the physics card and say, oh, well, you're not a genius physicist, so what do you know about this? But as a physicist, what is your estimation of the relationship between carbon dioxide and temperature? Do you think it is driven by carbon dioxide, that carbon dioxide drives the temperature? Do you think it is the temperature that drives the carbon dioxide? Well, certainly in the ice age cycles, it's pretty clear that it's temperature driving carbon dioxide, because if you look at the ice cores from Antarctica, you can you know, measure the carbon dioxide in the air bubbles that were trapped in the ice, and it goes up and down with the ice ages. So there is a lot less carbon dioxide at the glacial maxima, like we had 20,000, 25,000 years ago, than there is today. And that's been happening for a million years or so. That's about the maximum that you can use the ice cores. But every time an interglacial comes, uh, carbon dioxide goes up, but it the temperature changes first, you know, so the uh, the cause is clearly the change in temperature. Temperature goes up, carbon dioxide goes up in the ice cores, temperature goes down, and, you know, a few centuries later, carbon dioxide goes down. So the, the it's a cause-effect relationship for sure, but it's temperature causing changes in CO2, at least for the last million years. Now, the carbon dioxide going into the air today is probably mostly from human emissions. 
you know, there's no evidence of this kind of increase in the ice core. However, it, it as I said when we began, uh, carbon dioxide hardly makes a difference to uh, radiation transport. You know, the, the heart of this is how does radiation get in and out of the Earth? We're heated by the sun and we're cooled by thermal radiation going out. And the effect of carbon dioxide is only on the outgoing thermal radiation. It is not very big. And even if you have no clouds, and, you know, half of the Earth is covered with clouds. Princeton's been covered with clouds for the last three days. (laughs) Even if there are no clouds where carbon dioxide has the maximum effect, it's only a 1% effect for doubling carbon dioxide. That's a really small effect. Yes. And if you put in clouds, that means it's only half as effective, you know, because where there are lots of clouds, the CO2 hardly matters at all. So I, my guess is that, you know, it would be very hard for CO2 if you double it to cause more than one degree of one degree Celsius of warming. And it's probably less than that. But I, I think that there, there has been some warming. You, uh, over the last couple centuries, we've had pretty good thermometer records. I think most of that is from the recovery of the from the Little Ice Age, you know, the Little Ice Age ended about 1800, and uh, it was much colder for several centuries during the Little Ice Age, and now we're slowly warming up. You can see that, for example, from the record of glacial retreats. Uh, the retreats really began around 1800, 1790, they were already shrinking, and that was long before any CO2 was going into the air. And so that was clearly some kind of a natural recovery. Exactly what it was being driven by is still hotly contested. Nobody's quite sure. May have something to do with the sun. I mean, I would imagine that, you know, a giant ball of plasma that is many, many thousands of times the size of the Earth is going to have a significant effect on the temperature of the Earth. Just, you know, I'm no physicist, I'm no climate scientist, I'll admit, but I mean... It'll be hard to convince me otherwise. And it seems to me completely backwards that people um, begin with the assumption that this tiny little trace gas is, as I like to call it, the control knob. And and this is really, I think, the powerful image that uh, once you think about it, like why should CO2 be a control knob for the Earth's temperature? It really doesn't make sense. The, the sun makes a lot more sense. The small variations in the radiation that we get from the sun are likely to impact the temperature much larger. I, um, on this question, I was extremely interested when the corona lockdowns happened uh, two years ago, when aviation was shut down, car driving was shut down, a lot of industry was shut down. We significantly reduced our CO2 emissions for a few months in uh, 2020. And I think um, what I find interesting, uh, I find a lot of things interesting, but I think the first thing is there was absolutely no curiosity among uh, most climate scientists to look at this example of this experiment that we've been afforded because of the coronavirus lockdowns, where here we are, we've reduced CO2 emissions by a significant amount. I've not seen attempts to quantify how much CO2 has been reduced, and I've not seen any attempt to try and um, extrapolate the effect of that reduction in CO2 to the climate. I have not seen anybody go and propose a thesis saying, all right, I mean, I think this this is what would have, uh, this is what uh, an honest scientific inquiry would have looked like. I think, you know, March 2020, the world gets shut down. Uh, If I were somebody who believed in the hypothesis that CO2 is the control knob for the Earth's temperature, I'd make 
testable predictions and say, based on our understanding of climate, I would say that if we reduce our CO2 emissions by, say, 50% over the next three months, we're going to get this much reduction in temperature or that much increase in temperature or rises in sea levels or increases in rainfall or droughts or whatever it is. You know, make testable predictions and then see whether those relationships held up. And yet we saw very little of that. We saw very little testable hypothesis because that, even though that was an excellent opportunity to test something like this. So in my mind, that would suggest that the impact of CO2 emissions on temperature, human CO2 emissions on temperature is likely inconsequential and insignificant because if we could shut down an enormous amount of the world's CO2, and I don't have an estimate for how much, but I would guess it must be at least 30%, you know, when airplanes were grounded and cars were locked up, that must cause uh, some effect, you know, if, if this really was the control. Well, let, let me just say, uh, Saif, I, I don't think it was as much as 30%. I, I, I should have checked, you know, I, but I, my, my memory is that it was about 6%. You know, I may, I may be wrong about that. That's easy to check. But it was not a very big change. It was something that that's small, you know, the, the measurements are pretty noisy, one of the problems is, you know, there's this huge uh, winter-summer cycle. And when they say CO2 in the air increased by two and a half parts per million last uh, last year, what they don't tell you is, well, yes, it increased by 20 parts per million, and then it decreased by 17 and a half or something like that. So there are these enormous up-down cycles due to the the summer drawdown of CO2, you know, during the northern summer, you know, everything is green and it sucks CO2 out of the air at an enormous rate. So CO2 really drops every year, goes down very fast, much, much faster than this very slow rise that we're observing. And then, you know, when winter comes and fall, then CO2 levels start shooting up again because respiration continues, you know, the soil microisms of fungi and stuff are still emitting CO2 in animals. And so uh, it, it's very, with this big oscillation due to uh, life, uh, it's hard to see the 6% change in human emissions uh, that I, I think is approximately what uh, happened during COVID. So what I found interesting is, first of all, I don't think there was, I haven't seen estimates of how much we reduced our emissions. But I did look at estimates of the Mount Nalao Ulua Observatory, which looks at uh, CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere. So first of all, you would have expected to see an impact on the temperatures of the Earth. But I think what was even more surprising, even for me, was that I would have expected to see an impact on atmospheric concentrations of CO2 because of the reduction in our emissions. Mm-hmm. And yet, you look at the trend, and this is from my latest book, The Fiat Standard, you look at the trends here. I can see the screen, right, that I'm sharing? Yes, yes, I see it very clearly. And those, those are the oscillations, summer, winter oscillations I mentioned. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. 
Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah. So the summer-winter oscillations are going exactly... I mean, it's imperceptible. If I, if I were to hide the x-axis mm-hmm. and told you to show me where's 2020 here, mm-hmm. I don't think you could uh, pick out which one of these is 2020. And if you look at the long-term trend here in figure 12, again, same thing. It's just... It's increasing, and with the, the annual uh, seasonal uh, oscillation taking place, it doesn't look like human emissions are even driving CO2 concentrations, are they? Well, I, I don't know what's driving it, because if you look at the ice core records, there's never been anything like this in the past few thousand years, you know, where the records are pretty good. For example, there a pretty well-documented medieval warm period when the North settled Greenland and, you know, even visited North America. And it was obviously warmer at that time. Greenland was warmer. They had farms there. They raised things like barley that won't grow there today. But there's no record in the ice core of any big increases of CO2. And it was probably at least as warm as today back then, maybe warmer. The other point I would make is if you look at this rate that you see here, if I, if I look at it on this slide, in 2021, it's uh, 415 parts per million. And it, it, at 2016, it was uh, 405. So that's 10 parts per million in about five years. So 10 divided by five is about two parts per million per year, right? So you're, you have data showing that CO2 is increasing at two parts per million per year. Well, if you de- decrease that by about 6% because of COVID, then it would be increasing by, what is that, about 1.9, 1.9 or 1.8, something like that, parts per million per year. So that would be quite hard to see on this graph. I see. Yeah, but I guess I, I guess the counter argument here would be that I mean, if the people who panic about the climate do get their way, we can't really do much more than what COVID did. Like, I mean, that was massively devastating to the livelihoods of billions of people worldwide, and we're still paying the bill today. You know, all of this inflation that's happening all over the world, obviously cannot be separated from all that. So this has been, uh, the, you know, even to just do six percent reduction in CO two was a massive, massive humanitarian cost. You know, we've got all these diseases that are increasing because, uh, you know, cancer rates and malaria and tuberculosis and all these diseases are, a lot of progress was made in fighting those diseases and a lot of it was reversed over the last couple of years because of these lockdowns. And that barely made a dent in the weather, in CO2 concentrations, and even in our CO2 emissions. So I think the, the case for, you know, remaking the world economy 
because of taking some precaution about the fact that you know maybe the atmospheric concentration of, the, uh, of CO2 is going to ruin us all, I think is entirely flimsy. But I take your point. Yeah, I, com- I completely agree with you that the uh, policies that are being urged on humanity by the uh, climate fanatics are suicidal, you know. I mean, it's, it's really a suicide pact. And we shouldn't do it. You know, it just is crazy. And uh, there is no scientific reason that we should be doing it. I mean, if anything, the, the, the one thing you can say clearly about more CO2 is that the Earth is getting greener. You know, that's absolutely clear from satellite images of the Earth. It's clear from agricultural yields. And so a big part of our current food supply is from more CO2. If we had the same CO2 they had in 1800, we wouldn't be producing enough wheat and corn to feed the world. So uh, we should be very grateful for the increases in CO2 and more increases will bring even more benefits from better growth of crops, better growth of forests, you know, more abundant seed life. Yeah, uh, you are part of the CO2 coalition. And I was, I I have a PhD from Columbia University in uh, sustainable development. And during the time when I was doing that PhD, I was a card carrying member of Climate Hysteria Squad. And for me, you know, CO2 at that time was just this evil that was going to suffocate us. And I remember the first time that I came across your website and I thought to myself, wow, I mean, it was outrageous. It was insane. Like those people are talking about the poison <laughs> that is destroying our earth yeah. as if it is a good thing. It's, it's, it's absolutely jarring and shocking initially when you come to it. But then I remembered, you know, my school studies of photosynthesis and yeah, <laughs> CO2 is plant food. It's, uh, it, it's one of the least controversial scientific statements you could make. It's uh, uh, that that's what plants eat. And so that, that's, you know, so today they put CO2 in greenhouses in order to make plants grow faster. That's right. That's right. And, you know, there are several reasons that CO2 benefits plants. Some of them are kind of subtle that you wouldn't at first expect. So the greening of the earth, which is very clear from satellites, is most pronounced in arid regions. So you see desert edges shrinking. You see western U.S. getting greener. You know, the deserty parts of India getting greener. And uh, that's because with more CO2, plants are more resistant to drought. We talked about stomata early, earlier in this show. And I pointed out that if you put more CO2 in the air, plants grow leaves with fewer holes in them, and they therefore la- lose less water. You know, right? For every CO2 molecule that diffuses into a leaf and is turned into sugar with photosynthesis, you lose 100 water molecules. Anything that allows the plant to cut water losses is a big deal. You know, today, a a typical plant requires about 100 grams of water to make a gram of sugar. That's because of these losses in the leaves. You shouldn't need that much. You should need much less than that if it were stoichiometric. The the whole thing, it's really amazing that people, it's I, I keep saying it, it's very much like belief in witches, you know, because it doesn't compute, you know, there's no scientific basis to demonization of CO2. Yeah, it's absolutely mind blowing. For me, I think maybe the smoking gun, you know, because, uh, because like when you're trying to discuss these issues, you, you're not confronted with a coherent theory that says, 
this is what happens and here's the evidence. Because if you could make a coherent scientific theory, you'd be able to make coherent predictions from it. So you'd be able to say, all right, here's what's going on. This is how much CO2 we're putting out. And if things continue, this is what we're going to see next year and in five years and in 10 years and in 20 years. And of course, they don't make these predictions. They make all these models and the models have all these scenarios that basically control, contain every possible temperature record imaginable. And therefore, essentially, they're unfalsifiable. So you always have this ever-shifting set of arguments that, oh, it's going to cause the oceans to acidify and that's going to kill all the fish, or it's going to cause the sea levels to rise. It's going to cause more flooding but also more droughts, but also more rain, but also less rain, but more snow, more extremes, more hurricanes, less hurricanes, or fewer hurricanes, I should say. But I think for me, like the the smoking gun is the one that you mentioned, which is there were farms in Greenland. There were farms above the Arctic tree line today. So now it's very clear there's a point, I'm not sure at at, at which lateral uh, line it is, somewhere around the Arctic, there's a line above which trees don't grow. It's just too cold, trees don't grow. But if you dig there, and people have dug there, they have found remains of trees. They have found remains of farms. So once upon a time, these places had plants growing in them. So Earth was warm enough to support plants growing at that point, which suggests significantly higher temperatures than what we have today. I think arguably more than just one degree Celsius warmer, right? Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yes. If you go back to the Eocene, you know, there were forests growing around the Arctic Circle. You can still see remains of them on Ellesmere Island. In fact, the dominant tree was the Dawn Redwood. And there are areas in Ellesmere Island where there are entire forests of sort of quasi-fossilized Dawn Redwoods that you can still make a campfire out of them. And it's kind of mind-blowing to think that you would be sitting there burning up wood that was produced 80 million years ago, <laughs> but people do that, you know, you're cold enough, I guess. It's, wow. But, uh, you know, that, that, of course, is extremely interesting, you know, science, ge- geophysics, you know, why is it that we've stopped studying these fascinating things and important things in, in order to focus on demonizing CO2 and driving people into poverty? And uh, it's, it's, uh, despoiling the landscape with windmills and solar panels. It's just astonishing that they've gotten away with this. Yeah, I'm looking here. There's uh, Elsmere Island mummified forest. This is in none of it in the north of Canada. Oh, and good of course, for you. Yeah, good for you. That, that's uh, Don Redwoods that you're looking at. <laughs> yeah, and like, of course, you know, the article doesn't want to get, uh, the, people, the guy who wrote the article doesn't want to get canceled. And so he says, rare mummified forest could offer us could offers us, could offers. So he's got his grammar mm-hmm. all messed up. So I, I tend to notice people make grammar mistakes when they're <laughs> fibbing. <Yeah. laughs> and so a rare mummified forest could offers a glimpse into how our environment has been changed by humans, of course, because mm-hmm. it's all our fault. You know, everything is our fault. But really, I mean, this is, the, this is a place where you can't imagine trees having grown any time in the last couple of hundred years. So these are very, very old. You know, maybe right. maybe it was humans who cut them down at some point, but the idea that they couldn't. Oh no, this was this was. I mean, this was before primates really had taken hold. <laughs> this was pre-primate, much less pre-human. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, even even yeah. if we were to even if we were to you know say, all right, well, all of this carbon dating stuff is suspect, and even if it was humans who burned them down, humans are powerless to stop plants back from growing back. I think, and that's the 
That's the key thing. The idea that pre-industrialization, we were affecting the weather up to the point where we could stop plants from growing in the north of Canada, I think is a bridge too far for even the most anti-carbon dioxide uh, fanatic to uh, <laughs> contemplate. Well, I hope, I hope so. <laughs> but you never say never. You know. it, it's mind-boggling for me. Um, if, if, if thousands or millions of years ago we had those trees there, and, you know, Earth survived enough for us to come out of this. You know, <laughs> whatever was going on back then was, it did not stop us from being here today, being able to have this conversation and have all of these incredible technologies that we've built. Seems to me like anything that we can do with industrialization is going to pale in comparison because it's, I mean, it's going to take a lot of, even, even by the most fanatic, exaggerated estimate of the impact of CO2 on temperature. We're going to need to burn a lot of fuel and oil and gas in order to get to the point where we can bring forests back to none of it in the north of Canada. What did you say? Yeah, that, that's true. Uh, nobody really knows why it was so much warmer then, but it was certainly not due to CO2. It, it clearly had something to do with different circulation patterns in the ocean and in the atmosphere. It's too bad that you can't get money to study that because that's much more important and more interesting than this nonsense about CO2, which is a, you know, it's a trivial thing, except for the good things, which are increasing plant productivity. But it, it really is not having any effect on climate to speak of. And it can't, you know, for very basic physics reasons, you know, you can, I know this better than most. I, I know about radiation transfer a lot better than most climate scientists do. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I would, I, I would agree, and I think you know the other good thing about carbon dioxide, which isn't mentioned. So yes, it does green the world, but of course also it does keep us warm and allow us to survive the winter and allow us to have electricity and to have houses that can withstand storms and build all of these amazing technologies that have made our lives so much better. I think, of course, the 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 the, the biggest glaring error here is this: the idea that CO two only has downsides. You know, it's boiling the oceans, it's acidifying the oceans, it's increasing global temperature, it's making the Earth uninhabitable. So you exaggerate the downsides, and on top of that, I mean, I'm not saying you, I and mean, they exaggerate the downsides, ignore the positives of greening. But I think most importantly, they ignore the positives on human economic flourishing. I mean, our life without mass emissions of CO2 would be a lot poorer. And I think, of course, it's it, it's always striking to me that none of the people that are very, very angry about the emissions of CO2 are uh, willing to live a life that reduces their CO2 emissions. I mean, they want you to do it. They want to pass laws that ban it. They want to pass taxes. They want to be in charge. They want to get to centrally plan. They want to get to force you to drive an electric car or force you to use this and that or the other thing instead of that. You know, use all these unworkable uh, inferior technologies instead of the more reliable things that we have. But they still want to fly in their airplanes. They still want to use computers that are impossible without massive amounts of coal burning and massive amounts of industrial processing. And all of that needs to be ignored. And we want to only focus on the massively exaggerated idea that CO2 is driving temperature in some kind of crisis. Yeah, you're right, Saif. Uh, let me go back to one of the things you mentioned, which was ocean acidification. And uh, 
again, the, the people who talk about this haven't got a clue of what acidification is or what CO2 does in the ocean, but you know, approximately 50 times more CO2 is in the oceans than in the atmosphere, and, and we should be grateful for that because it's the CO2 that has uh, turned the oceans from basically drain cleaner, you know, it, ocean is essentially a sodium hydroxide solution. It's extremely alkaline. It's about the same alkalinity as household ammonia, you know, pH without CO2 would be about 11.3, you know, which is extremely caustic. The only thing that makes the oceans livable is the enormous amount of CO2 that's dissolved in them. And, and uh, we, you know, life depends on that. Without the CO2, the oceans would be uninhabitable. <laughs> so there are many good things that CO2 does. And, and, and yet all we hear is, you know, you know, carbon pollution, you know, it's, it's, it's absurd really absurd <laughs> i know and 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 this is yet another one of these fields of research in which a lot of money has been plowed in and a lot of you know preconceived notions have been validated by supposedly scientific studies and upon closer inspection recently you know it became pretty clear that a lot of this evidence is pretty shoddy. So these two scientists have looked into, uh, this is an article from science.org. These two scientists went and tried to replicate some of the uh, worst results about ocean acidification. And they found that basically this has uh, been massively exaggerated. Uh, this is a very interesting article. And it's just, it's a very common thing that you find in all of these sciences, in, in all of these things. Like there's a there's a conclusion that once that they want to arrive at. And the conclusion mm -hmm. is crisis. The conclusion mm -hmm. is Things are bad. Things are going to be really bad. And uh, the only way for you to atone for uh, your sins is <laughs> to basically give me money, more money to study things and more money to control your life and do it. And it's, uh, you know, at a certain point, you can't ignore the pattern that you see with all of those things. Wouldn't you agree? I agree. Yeah. It's, it's really uh, disappointing that the educated people actually seem to be uh, in worse shape. Uh, with respect to these uh, superstitions and the ordinary people, you know, my taxi driver and my barber have a lot more sense about climate <laughs> and climate change <laughs> than my academic colleagues, you know, and, and especially people who work outside, you know, farmers and folks like that, you know, they live with the climate, the real climate, not something on a computer screen. And they know perfectly well that every year is different. And uh, some are warmer, some are colder, some you get more rain, some you get less. To the uh, normal person that that is second nature but to the the highly educated elite you know who's gone to prep schools and to the best ivy league institutions and has never rode a you know hoed a row of corn <laughs> they, <laughs> they, it's just beyond them they, they can't grasp yeah. it <laughs> yeah and, and and there's this t tendency and temptation to need to find a smart justification for anything you know i've got a degree from this university, that means I can explain everything. So, oh, it's rained a lot this year. Well, let me tell you why it rained a lot this year. Well, no, it's always going to, you know, we always measure rain and we're going to get an average and we're going to get some years in which it's below average, some years in which it's above average. Some years going to be massive outliers on the one side, and other years it's going to be massive outliers on the other side. In, in any natural phenomena, you're going to get this kind of variation. In some phenomena, you're going to get extreme variations at some certain points. 
the, this temptation that we need to find a justification for it, I think is, is behind a lot of this. But I don't think it's the only thing that's really driving all of this. So I'm curious now, like, I think I'm, I'm very curious about your experience and, and your impression about why is this group think so dominant in modern academia? Why is it that so many professors who really should know better continue to do this? I mean, this is something I've speculated about and I've written about extensively, and I analyze it from the economic perspective, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Well, I don't think it's a new phenomenon. I think academics have always plagued by groupthink. I recently looked up the witch hysteria in Germany, and it started in the uh, 1400s, just before the uh, Protestant Revolution, Reformation, I guess I should say. You know, the uh, entire faculty of theology at Cologne signed this this, uh, preface to the malleus maleficarum, you know, the hammer of the witches, saying that witches are really the, uh, an existential threat to civilization, you know, just like climate today. And, and it was unanimous, every single one of these people. And, and they complained that there were all these silly people out there who uh, wondered whether there really were such things as witches, you know, and they even had the nerve to preach from the pulpit that you shouldn't be uh, hanging witches, you know, that this was not a good thing. They, were they denied the science of witches? <laughs> the science of witches. Yeah, it was a science. You know, they, they had journals, they had, you know, important papers. And, you know, when, when we had the witch trials in Salem in, in Massachusetts, 1690, that was a lot later than, you know, the Germans. So we should have learned something in those centuries, but we didn't. And every one of the judges had a Harvard degree, every one of them. And, you know, Cotton Mather was busy selling a book, you know, on on how to detect and hang witches, you know, during the trial. He made a lot of money. (laughs) Wow. So this is not new. You know, academia has blood on its hands and it always has. Yeah. And I mean, it's really the biggest example of not learning from history to imagine that we've learned all of these lessons from history and that somehow we are all so very different from our ancestors who were around doing all of this stuff over 100 years ago. I mean, at the end of the day, all of the people that are alive today came from all of the people that were alive back then. So genetically, we're not very different. You know, the people who were uh, hanging witches, uh, they made children who today are among us. And so we're not much better than them. I'm sure, you know, we've invented a lot of technology. I think I'm a big fan of technological improvement. And I think, you know, particularly hydrocarbon fuels have absolutely transformed our lives right. and allowed us to live in a way that most of our ancestors can't imagine. You know, the, the number of things that we take for granted, like being able to stay warm in the winter is, is astounding. Mm-hmm. But that has not changed us. You know, we've hundreds of years of invention and innovation and capitalism allowed us to develop this technology and popularize it and make billions of people worldwide comfortably survive the winter. But that hasn't changed our inner wiring. We're still the same group of people that would hang witches and that would go crazy over all kinds of hysterias. We're not better than that. And you don't need to posit some kind of giant evil conspiracy to get to the point of, well, why do all of those people believe that? And this is, this is another one of the things when you're trying to argue with people who believe the earth is ending, you know, the chicken littles of climate is, 
like many of them don't even understand the science, don't even want to understand the science. They don't care about it. And they'll just tell you, so how do you explain that all of those people are wrong? Well, I don't have to <laughs> ask them. You know, I, the, the idea that just because the mob is going along chanting something, then, you know, they can't all be wrong. You know, 100 out of 100 <laughs> mob members <laughs> agree that witches need to be hung. So where is your... Uh, <laughs> What is your counter argument? How do you explain all of them being wrong? And the answer is, I don't. I can't. I don't have to. It's not up to me to explain why they're wrong. It's up to them to explain why they're out there in a mob calling for lynching the technologies that make our life possible. <laughs> no, you're right, Saif. And it's, it is kind of discouraging. You would hope that with better education, that we wouldn't have this kind of problem, you know. But actually, as we've discussed, education seems to make it worse, actually. It doesn't make it better. So I think example, the key word is better education. I'm not sure education is getting better. Yeah, well, may, maybe. Uh, I, I don't know what you do about it. I, you know, uh, going back to Salem, uh, many of the common people in Salem were against the witch trials, you know, when they were hanging a particularly popular preacher, you know, they... Uh, threatened to uh, actually lynch the hangman instead of the <laughs> the alleged witch. But, you know, for example, they said, let him say the Lord's Prayer. You know, if he can say the Lord's Prayer, which you can't do that. And, and of course, the, this poor guy said the Lord's Prayer perfectly. And then Cotton Mather, the guy selling the book on how to hang witches, rode up on his white horse and, you know, waved his sword to threaten the crowd and said, hang him, hang him. It's the devil speaking. So they hung him. All right. <laughs> But, but, the, but it, was being, it was driven from the top. It was driven by the educated people. And it was the common people who had the good sense and the humanity to object. Well, I did not know about the Harvard role in the Salem witch trials. I'm, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, I'm the biggest anti-fan of Harvard there is. I think there is no more damning indictment of somebody than saying that they're associated with Harvard. Generally, it is the worst marker of quality. And I think, you know, they're track record with economics. The economists that come out of Harvard are the absolute worst. The nutritionists that come out of Harvard, I think, are the absolute worst. And I think uh, uh, you could make the same case for many, many scientists. So now I can add <laughs> Salem Witch Trials to the long list of distinctions that this incredible institution has uh, bestowed upon the world. <laughs> well, there, there are exceptions. There are many very... Uh, wonderful people who've come out of Harvard, but, but a lot of bad ones too. And that's true of every university, certainly true of my university here at Princeton. What good people came out of Harvard? Can you name one? I can't. Um, I think in the hard sciences, uh, for example, people I even knew, you know, I, I really admired, you know, the physicist Pound, you know, who invented magnetic resonance or, you know, uh, so I think the further you get away from policy, the more academia has to be proud of. You know, I, I'm a little unnerved about that, given what happened during the COVID, <laughs> you know, episode. But but in general, the scientists at Harvard have been very good. They've had some spectacular astronomers, for example, at Harvard, uh, Lyman, you know, for whom, you know, Lyman Alpha Radiation is named. Uh, so 
they they can be proud of their their science. So, what what is your assessment of science in general in the modern university? Because here, let, let me tell you uh, how I come at this. I was doing my PhD in sustainable development, which was, I mean, we studied climate and we studied natural sciences, but primarily the course was in economics. And so my area of focus was economics. And during my time there, I became pretty disillusioned with the way that economics is taught. And I came to the conclusion that a lot of it is not very good, <laughs> to just put yeah. it mildly. Then later on, um, I looked at nutrition critically and I came to the conclusion that what they tell us about food is horrible. It's primarily driven by industrial producers and by inflationary monetary policy, which is where the economics comes in. And that, you know, as inflation goes up, prices of food go up and the way to fight inflation is for government to tell people, hey, you don't need to eat meat and all of the nutritious things that make you strong and healthy. Here, try some of this cheap industrial waste instead. It's actually good for you. So I think a lot of nutrition science is driven by the propaganda but the need for propaganda to tell people to eat industrial waste. You know, with climate, I've come to also be very skeptical of a lot of the climate scientists because, again, this chicken littleism. And then with COVID, I've come to completely distrust the field of epidemiology, which I believe is also another form of uh, pseudoscience because, you know, these people come up with uh, graphs and numbers and uh, think that diseases come pre-programmed as if we're playing a game of SimCity. And so, you know, you, you're going to have to kill this many people for the disease to go through the society. And that's not how it works. Health is an individual thing. Um, if a society is all healthy people, uh, you know, COVID would have very little uh, success killing many of them. If everybody's uh, metabolically unhealthy, COVID is going to kill a lot. These kind of things are ignored in epidemiology where they like to look at an aggregate from a macro perspective. And that you find it in uh, macroeconomics, you find it in epidemiology, you find it in nutrition, and you find it in many of these sciences and climate. And I think what drives it is the need for policy. It's, it, it's driven from a policymaker's perspective. And I think this is just a way to corrupt scientific inquiry when you come at it from the question of what should the policymaker do? Because uh, the answer almost always is the policymaker shouldn't be doing anything. And therefore, if you need to find something for them to do, you're going to try and torture the data and torture the theories until you can come up with something. Well, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, there's a, a nice uh, story about that where uh, some, you know, satrap in ancient Persia died and he went to heaven and uh, Zeus said, well, uh, what did you do when you were on earth? And uh, the satrap said, well, actually, I... You know, I, I really didn't like working very much. I had this nice cushy job and I had my assistant to, you know, sign all the papers and take care of all the business. Well, what did you do? Well, I ate and I slept and I, I really didn't do anything. And uh, Zeus said, great, you know, come into heaven. And, you know, Mercury said, what are you talking about, Father Zeus? How could you do that? And Zeus says, just think of the damage he could have done with all that power if he had been serious. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, people can cause a lot of harm if they're trying to, you know, do a job, but when there's no work really to do, so they make work and it actually causes more harm than good. Oh, I agree. But what is, what is your assessment of the hard sciences? And do you think that they are getting into the same kind of problems? I, I'm no physicist. I don't claim expertise in physics. But, well, uh, I, I, maybe I'm prejudiced. I think so far physics is doing okay. You know, they're addressing fascinating problems. You know, 
to my mind, the most exciting one is the, the uh, missing matter. What is it that holds the uh, galaxies together? Dark energy, dark matter. So there are wonderful problems out there, and, and the best and the brightest are, are working on problems like that. Fortunately, they don't have very much uh, to do with policy. So, you know, policymakers could hardly care, you know, what dark matter is. And so I think the further scientific disciplines are from uh, potential policy, the healthier they will be. And pure mathematics, for example, is pretty far from any policy. And so I, I would say the I would say the the most basic parts of the of science are still okay, but those that overlap with policy uh, are in deep trouble because they're. Uh, uh, they've been uh, sort of hijacked by people with uh, agendas. You know, they're really not interested in scientific truth. They're interested in getting agenda support, you know, with so-called science. And so science gets invented to support this or that. You know, sometimes maybe it's worth supporting, but many times it's not. It's just, you know, wasting people's time and money, freedom, you know. Yeah. Well, what are your thoughts then on the IPCC? That's about as policy-based science as it gets. What do you think of this as an organization and what do you think of their reports? Well, I think some of the science, in, especially in the early IPCC reports, was very good. You know, if, if you read the scientific sections, it's honest, it's quite modest about claims of accuracy and uh, reliability. They uh, were quite clear that many things were very uncertain. In fact, the first two or three reports said there's no evidence that actually that humans have anything to do with the climate. But then after uh, a few years, it was hijacked by the same, you know, policy zealots. And then the quality began to go down. I think every year they come out with a new report. And every year it, it brings less credit to the scientific parts of IPCC, but it certainly started out well. There were some good stuff in the early reports. The scientific parts, again, I, I stress, I'm not talking about the policy. Yeah, and so currently, I mean, do you think their conclusions are justified by the data in terms of, and, and of course here's very difficult because the, the reports comprise many, many, many studies. And I think, you know, the more people dig in, the more they realize that as you go from laboratory to press release, the sensationalism goes up and the rigor goes down, right? Mm -hmm. Well, IPCC has a problem, you know, they, at least their leadership thinks that they have to maintain this crisis atmosphere, you know, that the world is coming to an end. Uh, I think a number of the percent participants, you know, scientific participants are honest enough to sort of know that that's not true, but they're afraid that they'll lose their jobs if they speak up. The, the problem is that, you know, it's really not warming nearly fast enough. Yeah, I'm sure you know that, that, you know, maybe it's warming at a tenth of a degree per decade, but that's a third or, or, or so of what has been predicted. You know, so the models are clearly uh, just completely off. They're running much, much too hot. And nobody knows how much of the warming that we're observing is due to CO2. Uh, uh, as we discussed earlier, probably uh, some good fraction of it is just natural recovery from the Little Ice Age, which is still going on. You know, that doesn't happen immediately. So I, I think they know they're in trouble. And I think, you know, the, the smarter ones are hoping that they will retire and be... Uh, 
indemnified against, uh, you know, prosecution for fraud, <laughs> you know, before it becomes obvious that it was, uh, that it was a scam. And so they can keep juggling this for just another, you know, 10 years and they'll be safely retired. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, um, uh, I, I think they're now at the point where they need to start worrying about the fact that uh, their hysteria might end up costing them electricity and the warmth this winter. I mean, we're at a world, we're in a world now where Europe is really staring down the barrel of a gun that is the next winter. Uh, sure, of course, you know the geopolitics of the uh, situation and the destruction of the Nord Stream uh, pipeline are obviously a huge part of it. But they are not the cause of Europe's problem. The cause of Europe's problem is the reliance on Russian gas and the reliance on Nord Stream, which was driven by decades of really CO2 hysteria. It was driven by the idea that we are going to move away from reliable 24-hour energy sources to use these unreliable sources that, that have been consuming mind-boggling sums of money. I mean, it's truly astounding. Germany alone has spent about $500 billion on wind farms, which is just astonishing in terms of subsidies. Just the subsidies that they've paid for this is about $500 billion, which is enough to build roughly um, gas capacity for Germany twice over. Like with $500 billion, you could, you know, you could get 80 million people in Germany and you could give them all gas plants that give them gas uh, twice, uh, you know, you, or you could do it once and then with the rest of the money, buy the gas or excavate the gas. I mean, if you think about it, uh, I, I don't support government central planning and I don't think this would be a good idea, but I mean, the government that can blow $500 billion on wind farms could have blown it on gas fields and gas plants. And then today, nothing happening with Russia and Ukraine would affect German consumers. You know, they'd have their own gas fields, they'd have their own gas pipes, they'd have their own gas plants, and they'd have the cleanest source of fossil fuel out there. And they'd have 24-hour electricity and they'd be warm in the winter. And instead, they're facing an absolute calamity. And I think it's, it's gotten to the point now where people need to really, I think, wake up because up until a few years ago, you know, I'd been, I, I'd grown skeptical about this since I finished my PhD and I, but I just was not very interested in it because I thought, you know, who cares? A bunch of people like Al Gore are going to get rich off of this. T. Boone Pickens is going to make money from his biofuels and windmill stuff. A bunch of uh, smart entrepreneurs are going to capitalize on this, make a lot of money from subsidies and all right, who cares? You know, a lot of people are making a lot of money from all kinds of different things. But only in the last two years or so did it become clear to me that it's not just that they're paying these people some money, it's that they're dismantling the reliable infrastructure that is the basics, basic building block of our civilization. They're basically taking the solid foundation on which all of our civilization rests. Everything that we've built over the last 500 years, all of the technologies of the last 500 years have come from burning coal, oil, and gas. And if you vilify these because of some insane hysterical fear of these gases, we're not, we, we can't keep all of these extremely advanced products that are built on top of it. You know, we can't have laptops and um, smartphones if we don't have massive coal, gas, and oil plants. There's just no way around it. And this is the dangerous thing about it. This is why I think 
we, you know, this, this is why I've been emboldened to speak about this, even though I get a lot of abuse about it and I get a lot of, oh, stay in your lane and what do you understand? And, um, but I don't care. You know, I've, I, I used to live in Lebanon and I saw a grid fail in Lebanon. I, I, I saw the grid get worse and worse and worse until it got to the point where it became unlivable. And I left Lebanon because of that. And at this point, it's, the reason I'm obsessed with this topic is from a very selfish perspective, I'd like my children to find a place in this world where they can grow up, where they can have 24-hour electricity and not have to spend every day of their life worrying about electricity because I've lived that. And I know just how absolutely destructive it is for your um, productivity, for your happiness, for your security to have to wake up every morning and think about where your electricity is going to come from and what time is it going to come and how to structure your life around that electricity. That way of living versus the way of living where you just always know that any switch you flick is going to give you what you asked of it is just an enormous difference. And if anybody listening who doesn't appreciate this difference, I hope you never have to experience it. Unless, of course, you're calling for the dismantling of hydrocarbon <laughs> infrastructure, in which case I hope you do, because maybe that'll be the wake-up call that you need. Well, you know, you may are touching on an important point here, which is that these uh, crazy things often have to have a crisis to end. Something a little bit similar happened with, say, the uh, eugenics movement, which was very popular in the late 1800s, early 1900s in Great Britain and in the United States, other parts of the world. At least in the United States, you know, it spawned a whole generation of eugenics experts. They were all frauds, you know, it was all nonsense. But they had journals, they had scientific meetings. Every little town had a eugenics club and women would go there every Thursday and wring their hands about the the ruination of the uh, good old Anglo-Saxon race, you know, and uh, how all these dumb, you know, foreigners were coming in, low IQ Eastern Europeans or Chinese and Japanese. It was just complete fraud, complete fraud, but everybody bought into it. Alexander Graham Bell was a supporter, the presidents of Harvard and Princeton and Stanford supported eugenics. And although it was, and there were many people like you back then who said, look, this is nonsense. You know, none of the alleged science is true. You you can see it's obviously wrong, but it it didn't make any difference. So it was not cured by uh, sweet reason. It was cured by the Nazis taking it over and then taking it to the extreme. And so after that horrendous experience, eugenics finally had to uh, own up to the fact that it was mostly nonsense. And uh, But it's a terrible way to end a... Uh, to end a uh, sort of a fanatic movement in humanity that it, it, it has to end in a crisis like that. But this may be necessary for the climate nonsense that some country or maybe Western Europe, maybe California, maybe Australia will have to do everything the fanatics demand. And, and then the world will have to witness what happens. It's looking like it's going to be Germany again. It's looking like it's going to be the famed efficiency of the Germans that's going to take these insane ideas to their logical conclusion. Yeah. Um, they have pursued insane deindustrialization with the same efficiency with which they have pursued their industrialization. I mean, German efficiency is world-renowned, and 
dismantling their efficient um, productive infrastructure. You know, they've gone to the point of dismantling nuclear weapons as well, uh, sorry, nuclear uh, plants as well. And now, I mean, they have 500 billion, half a trillion dollars worth of windmills, which mm. are basically silent and mm. producing nothing for many, many parts of the year. And well, they, they don't just dismantle these uh, reliable plants, they uh, dynamite them, they blow them up. So you, <laughs> you can't go back and use them again. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, I mean, I, I hope it doesn't get become a humanitarian crisis, but it certainly looks like it. It certainly looks like it's going to be a very, very ugly winter. And I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, a lot of people die every winter from the cold. This is just always the reality. Um, thousands of people, or uh, I, think it's, I think it's about 4 million people every year who die from the cold. It's mm-hmm. just uh, always the case. Cold is no joke. And so Germany's cold, of course, is also extremely strong. So this winter, if it is a harsh winter, it, it, it could be absolutely horrific. And I, I, I wonder if that's going to be the kind of wake-up call. Because I, I, I can see a shift in, uh, in people's consciousness on this. There was a time in which, you know, you couldn't get invited to dinner parties if you said uh, you thought wind energy was silly. Now it's becoming more and more common that a lot of people are saying you know, would have been nice if we weren't so reliant on the wind blowing in order to have electricity now that we want to stand up to a Russian invasion or so on. So people are beginning to realize, yeah, the sun doesn't shine 24-7 and the wind doesn't blow 24-7 and that renders all these solar panels and windmills essentially superfluous because you need to build reliable capacity that matches demand 24-7 and can meet the peak demand, which can happen. You know, you could get peak demand at a time when solar and wind are contributing zero. So you need to build a capacity with reliable energy sources. And that means that everything that you're spending on unreliable energy sources is just an extra cost. It's not saving anything. One argument I thought was the redeeming argument for it is that, well, at least when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining, you're reducing the amount of fuel that you're... uh, nuclear or uh, coal or gas plants are consuming. But it turns out that that is probably not true because the management of these plants, apparently, what is becoming obvious now for engineers in places like Britain and Germany and Australia, is that if you just ran a gas plant independently without having to hook it into all these uh, pre-industrial technologies of sun and wind, then you can manage the load and you can manage the operation of the plant much more efficiently than if you try and do it while, you know, basically being at the mercy of the gods of the weather. So the sun is blowing. All right, let's turn down the gas turbines. All right, oh, sorry, the sun is shining. Turn down the gas turbines. The wind is blowing. Turn down the gas turbine. Oh, the wind is stopped. Let's turn up the gas. Like that kind of inefficiency in managing these enormous uh, reliable power plants makes it much more expensive to manage them and also reduces the life expectancy. So, um, it's arguably not even saving you on fuel. It's just all extra costs and degradation of our industrial capacity and our ability to provide uh, a 24-hour grid, which is something that the majority of the industrialized world had basically conquered by, what, the 60s? That's true. One of the reasons that, for example, a, a hybrid car gets good fuel efficiency is because they run the gasoline engine at the maximum efficiency and and charge the uh, battery. 
And so they don't have startup and stop inefficiencies that when you're ramping up an engine or ramping down an engine, engines run best at a certain power level. And if you're constantly uh, turning them on and off, the efficiency goes way down. So you may be right that it, there's actually no savings. And I, I don't know the numbers, but but there's certainly not as much savings as you would think. Very much so. Yeah, and I agree. You've also done work on the ozone layer and the 1987 Montreal Protocol on preventing ozone depletion. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that was sort of the uh, wind up. It was sort of the practice session, you know, for the climate hysteria was the ozone hysteria. And that's when Al Gore got his start. And uh, and they always planned to go after carbon dioxide next. They, they admitted that. At that time, I was the director of energy research at Department of Energy and we were funding a lot of that work. And I, I knew that, you know, what was being said in the press was not what our researchers were finding. For example, the big worry about ozone was that it were uh, removed from the upper atmosphere, there would be more ultraviolet B reaching the surface, it would cause more skin cancer. And the problem with that argument was that measurements didn't show any decrease in UVB, you know, over most of the United States and any increase, I should say. In fact, most places it showed decreases and for whatever the reason. And the second was there was no correlation you could find between malignant skin cancer, you know, melanomas and uh, UVB, you know, you would get melanomas on the soles of your feet, you know, where it was never exposed to ultraviolet. So I was certainly in favor of uh, uh, doing something that would prevent damage, but I, I didn't see the evidence at the time. And so I, I was, I, I would make these comments that where is the scientific evidence for all of this hysteria you're talking about? I don't see it, you know, and I'm funding the work, so I know. <laughs> So, of course, that, that really irritated Al Gore. And so when he won the election, he couldn't wait to fire me. And I, I was grateful to be fired. I was, <laughs> was able to go back to Princeton and do some honest research again. And, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a generally a thankless task to be working. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the ozone hole is still there around Antarctica. It probably had almost nothing to do with Freon. No, who, nobody quite knows how it works, even to this day. Yeah, I think that we just, uh, as we were saying earlier, I think the more educated you are, the harder it is to just have the humility to say, yeah, well, uh, I, we don't understand everything in this enormous, enormous planet on which we live. Yeah, uh, pe People really want to have the idea that our planet is like our home, but it isn't. You know, We built the home from scratch before this mm -hmm. home was built. It was just an empty plot of land. And then somebody turned it into a home and every single thing in that home was put there by somebody who was a human being like us. So it's possible for us to understand it. Well, the earth is not like that. The earth was there before we were born, likely before all of our ancestors were born. And maybe we just don't have a clear instructions manual of how to handle those things. Maybe we just can't control it. Well, we, we can control many things, you know, and we've done, that's what's brought modern civilization. We've learned how to make heat engines, you know, to provide the electricity that you mentioned. And we've learned 
how to give good health care, you know, so that, you know, half the population doesn't die before the age of three. And uh, so, you know, knowledge really is power, but pseudo-knowledge is just the opposite. Right? <laughs> so so I, that's the problem is that, you know, I think there's this, uh, this uh, Alexander Pope, had this nice verse, you know, a little learning is a dangerous thing, you know, and it really is a dangerous thing. You know, you, you learn things that aren't true and it's hard to dissuade you once you think you've learned that. Yeah. Especially when it becomes an identity as it is for many, many people. Yeah. Tamara has a question for you. She wants to ask you, what do you think are the biggest kinds of pollution that bother you? What are the real pollution problems out there? If we say if the ozone and CO2 are not such calamities, are there actual pollution problems that you uh, lose sleep over? Well, certainly, you know, if you go to Los Angeles, you know, the pollution is a lot better than it used to be. But just the pollution from driving automobiles used to put lots of oxides of nitrogen in the air and, you know, volatile hydrocarbons in the air. And so you could hardly see from one end of the street to the other. That's much better than it used to be because of catalytic converters and better control of emissions. So that's the kind of pollution that we should be attacking. Coal plants are similar, you know, coal, when I was a kid, I, I was a kid in Scotland and it, we ran Scotland old coal at that time. And it was really filthy. You know, you go to school in the morning and by the time you came home, you were just black. The collar of your shirt was black, you know, from all the soot and the coal and people would, you know, get lung problems from breathing the smoky air. That's all gone now. So that's real pollution. So there, we've done a wonderful job getting rid of real pollution. They don't have pea soup fogs in London anymore, but that used to be very common. So we, we should focus on real pollution and uh, get rid of that and uh, not waste money on things that aren't poll pollutants at all, in fact, which are good for for the world. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, 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 the controversial thing here is that the way that people got rid of coal was not to dismantle coal plants and go back to using windmills and sunshine. The way they did that was after, after they used coal and got a lot more productive, they could afford to move to natural gas and nuclear plants. And that's the real energy transition that the world should have been uh, focusing on in the last 50 years. This is what I think markets would have achieved in the last 50 years. The poorest places in the world, I mean, you may not like coal, and of course, yeah, I agree with you. It is a serious issue. But realistically, the realistic alternative to coal for most people is not some Star Trek immaculate existence where nothing gets burned, but everything moves around magically. The realistic alternative to coal is poverty. And the way out of coal is, you know, get rich with coal, and then you can buy natural gas and nuclear plants, which are much cleaner. You can make quite good coal plants today that have almost no pollutants. I mean, I visited not long ago a uh, ultra super critical plant, coal plant in Texarkana, Arkansas. It's the most modern plant in the U.S. and we haven't built any since, but it was a September day and it was beautiful and blue sky. And uh, as we were driving toward the plant, you know, I thought, uh, well, the plant must be shut down because there was nothing coming out of the stack. You couldn't see anything, not even steam. It was dry, so there was no condensation. 
from the uh, stacks or from the cooling towers. Yeah. But when we got there, it was running full blast. It was burning, you know, U.S. coal from Wyoming. And they showed us the pollution controls. And they start by getting rid of the oxides of nitrogen. You know, when you burn coal properly, it's very, very high temperature. So you fuse oxygen and nitrogen and some of that comes out. So they bleed in a little bit of anhydrous ammonia to, to clean out the oxides of nitrogen, convert it all to N2, it's just ordinary nitrogen. And then they clean out the, any residual sulfur with a lime uh, bath. And then they have big bag houses where they clean out the very last particles of fly ash. So by the time it comes out the top of the stack, you can't see anything. All that's in it is water vapor and CO2. You can't get rid of those, but they are both good for the world. You know, they're both completely natural. They, they uh, We breathe both of them out every breath that we take. You know, people don't seem to realize that we're based on carbon. You know, <laughs> every one of us breathes out about two pounds of CO2 a day. That's a lot of CO2, you know, multiplied by eight billion people. You know, so it really worries me when you demonize something that comes from people. You know, does that mean you have to get rid of people? It's a, it's, it's a common meme that's become popular on the internet. Um, you are the carbon they want to reduce. Yeah. <laughs> it seems yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, some of them do. You know, some of them are quite honest about it. They say, you know, the earth can handle 8 billion people. We have to go down to less than a billion, you know. And so which seven out of eight of us has to commit suicide or, you know, it's, it's a it's scary philosophy. It absolutely is. And what's really scary about it is that, um, you know, if it wasn't for these insane philosophies, we'd arguably be a lot richer and we'd be able to afford a much better quality of life for all 8 billion people. I mean, I, I think of all of the money that's been wasted on all of these renewable energy sources over the last 50 years in terms of subsidies and investments and all of the things that have been mandated for people to take part. Imagine if that stuff didn't exist at all. And then just Think about if all of that money was instead spent on modernizing and improving coal, gas, and nuclear power plants. It's not unreasonable to expect that the entire planet would today have very cheap, reliable 24-7 electricity. I think it's just, it's such a, I wouldn't say trivial, but it's such a straightforward problem. And it increases people's productivity so much. If mm -hmm. you just, you know, build a small little gas plant and then suddenly everybody has got electricity and then their productivity goes up enormously. The ability to survive winter goes up enormously. The ability mm. of premature babies to make it is, increases enormously. All of that really doesn't require a lot of investment. Coal plants and gas plants are ridiculously cheap when compared to uh, wind and solar and all of those things. So imagine if we hadn't wasted all of that money on that. Imagine just how much better the quality of life would be. So ironically, people look at the impoverishment of, you know, we've had these technologies for more than a century now. We've had power plants for almost a century, maybe. And we have billions of people who don't have access to one of those things. And then they look at that poverty, which is because they don't have access to that technology, and they think, ah, the earth can't fit all of us. And then the solution clearly is we need to get rid of all of us, or most of us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and, you know, if, if they want to control population, it's very clear that that's easy to do. All you do is make people prosperous. And then, you know, women don't have as many children and you have to kind of bribe them to, to sustain the population. You know, they don't want to have a bunch of kids. You know, it's, uh, 
it's a lot of trouble and well-off countries, you know, United States would be losing population if it weren't for immigration, you know, because uh, people don't have enough children to uh, sustain the population. And uh, that's true of much of Western Europe. It's true of Russia, you know, population growth is a feature of poverty. So if you want rational populations and you want to make people prosperous and you can't make them prosperous without letting them have fossil fuels. <laughs> so, Yeah, there's just no way of escaping that. And our next seminar, we're hosting Alex Epstein, who wrote a book called Fossil Future and the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which really very powerfully makes that case. And I think he's, he's absolutely correct on it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Nathan has a question for you on coal plants. Okay. Yeah, you already covered that, so I'm going to change the question to, are you, uh, are you, I, by the way, I've read a lot of your work over the years. It's, it's really good to cross paths. Thank you much. Thanks, Nathan. Are you aware of any kind of analysis regarding distribution what, for, in, uh, in California with the idea that they're going to have all electric cars, assuming that somehow is a good idea, how big a wire would it take to feed electricity into L.A. to charge those cars? That has to be the distribution problem. I never hear anybody talk about it as if all of these tanker trucks just magically appeared one day. The energy distribution is a big problem. No, it is a huge problem. And, and people just refuse to come to terms with that, that the California grid today cannot possibly, uh, you know, service all electric vehicles in California it can't be done. And the cost to bring it up, you know, to standard to do that is just enormous. Just the last summer, for example, people were forbidden to charge the few electric cards they had, you know, because the grid already was overloaded. And uh, this is this is with uh, just one or two percent electric cars, but they were already a problem. So to make them all electric, it, it's just crazy. You know, you can't do it. They will learn, you know, by bitter experience. This is one of these crises that we were talking about earlier. So. In some ways, I'm delighted that California has done this. I wish they would do more. You know, the crazier they are, the quicker we'll get to the end of this. <laughs> yeah, feed them all the rope we can. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, what's yeah. the kitty's name? His name is Samson. Oh, my wife walked by and appreciated He doesn't live up to it very well. He's a very cowardly cat. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Professor Happer, this has been absolutely fascinating and eye-opening. I thank you so much for all the work you've done, for the courage of standing up, for the courage of speaking up, for using your position and your title to speak the truth when it would have been so much easier and more lucrative for you to go along with the witch-lynching mob. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be talking to you, and I thank you so much for joining us and for everything you do. Well, thank you, Saif, and you keep spreading the truth, too. We need you. <laughs> thank you, sir. I appreciate okay. it. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Yeah.